Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50, nearly 60-year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. I did notice, I think in a couple of years, guys, we're coming up on the 60th for RTS as a whole. That's and next year, Yeah. And next year is our 30th year for the RTS Washington campus. So we'll have to think about how celebrate. to celebrate that and uh, talk about maybe get some of the old folks who helped get this whole thing started 30 years ago. But we have a special treat today. Uh, we get to talk to Dr. Lloyd Kim, who is the coordinator of Mission to the World for the Presbyterian Church in America, who is coming up on their 50th year anniversary. So we have a lot going on. Uh, Dr. Lee, let me hand it over to you to start this conversation with Lloyd. Lloyd, it's great to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely, Lloyd. Hey, old pal, good to see you again. Good to have you with us. And again, thanks for teaching our missions class. The uh, student response yeah. already, even during the breaks, is is overwhelmingly positive. In fact, I'm mildly insecure with my own <laughs> faculty reviews now because it's it's making us all look bad. So stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, uh, we appreciate you coming and uh, uh, join us to share some of your thoughts here on uh, the work you've been doing for MTW. How long have you been the coordinator now? I'm in my ninth year, and if you if you can believe it, in um, yeah, 2022, I've been with MTW altogether as a missionary for 20 years. Well, my goodness, that's amazing, and and the work you've done there has been so incredible, both on the field in Southeast Asia. And uh, and I know over the last almost 10 years now that you've been doing coordinated work here for MTW, you know, in, in 10, almost 10 years of work, I'm sure you've seen a lot, done a lot, uh, witnessed a lot. I, I, I guess after 10 years, if you've had a time to reflect, I'm curious, what have been some of the um, kind of highlights, uh, it, some, um, some of the more exciting things that you've witnessed during your time as a coordinator? Yeah, that's a great question. Um... Maybe I'll start with just how the church, particularly the Presbyterian Church in America, um, who I serve, how they've responded to the, the simple challenge to begin praying for 1% of their adult members to be sent out into longer-term missions. We didn't know quite what God would do with that um, and how the church would respond, but uh, we started asking, okay, how can we begin praying for something that only God could do. And the churches have just been so enthusiastic about it. We've, we've seen kind of a mental shift, I think, in many of our churches in being a lot more proactive in looking for the 1% in their congregations to say, okay, who among us, our best, our brightest evangelists, disciple makers, would we like to offer to the, to, to the Lord first and in, in, in their service to the nations? to be our 1% and uh, just hearing uh, churches talk about it. Um, yeah, there are 1% and there are 1%. It's, it's been really kind of cool to see how God has um, used this simple prayer challenge to bring a lot more missions, mobilization, excitement. Yeah, that's terrific. In fact, I remember when you were here last, uh, we had like an MTW night here at the seminary for for uh, local pastors and individuals who are thinking about missions to come and meet you, uh, and that I know you shared that one percent vision 
uh, at that setting. At least that was the first time I had heard it. Uh, maybe for uh, the, the sake of our, our friends who are listening to this now, could you share what exactly is this 1% vision here that, that, you were, uh, that you were just talking about? Well, um, yeah, it, it really was after some reflection. So actually in 2012, we did some ransom numbers and realized that if we didn't mobilize 150 new missionaries in mission to the world, that um, we couldn't replace what we anticipated um, would be the number of those retiring or, or um, changing their call. So we were in 2012, we said for the next two years, pray for 150 new missionaries. And we asked the churches to pray and they prayed. And after two years, guess what happened? That's right. God raised up 148 new missionaries. Now we're wow. not going to quibble with God about the two that we were praying for that didn't, he didn't <laughs> mobilize, but you know, it's, he's in charge. So we submitted to that. But then after that, we said, why did we only pray for 150? Like, who are we, at, who are we praying to? I mean, he's, he's the Lord of the harvest. And so that's when we started asking, like, what, what kind of prayer should we be praying, Lord? Um, what would be a challenge that we could give to our churches that could um, result in incredible kingdom impact? And so that's where we started thinking about more of a tithe uh, a tithe mentality, but not tithing money, but tithing people. And so when we first thought about, okay, like a tithe is 10%, what would 10% of our adult members um, being sent to missions look like? That's like 28,000. We said, okay, our faith is not that big, Lord, sorry. You just can't begin praying for that. How about 1%, you know? And uh, so that's what gave birth to the 1% challenge. We are hoping that it would kind of change the mentality of our church leaders and thinking about, um, mobilizing for missions. Normally, churches, they just kind of wait for somebody to come along, say, I'm interested, and then, you know, refer them to a mission agency. But we are hoping that, you know, just like your tithe, you give your, your first fruits, your best, the people that you would uh, hate to see leave and to challenge them and to come alongside them and to resource them um, all throughout their journey to be sent. And so it was a 10-year thing. We started in 2017. Um, we're uh, now in our uh, sixth year. Last year, about halfway through, we, we surveyed some churches just to see how we're doing. And from the beginning, we said, they don't all have to come to MTW. We're not expecting that. Um, any mission agency, you know, if, as long as the, the churches are, are sending people, um, we rejoice. But we surveyed 173 churches responded, and we added it up how many congregation members they had and how many people they sent. And uh, the result just after five years was 0.96%. So almost 1% have already been sent from these 173 churches. Uh, so again, that's exciting. That's super encouraging for us. We, um, we know that this doesn't represent all the PCA at all, but you know, the, these are sort of leading edge churches, but we're just so delighted to see how God has been answering these prayers. Amen. So, the, I mean, the PCA is not, I, forgive me, but probably not known immediately about like missions. You know, pre Presbyterians don't get an immediate like, uh, you know, credit for all of the mission work that, that we're currently doing. Um, how, how do you, why do you think that that is? Like, how, why why do Presbyterians get a bad rap when it comes to missions, and how can we get more involved and excited about it? 
you know, for in in our churches? What what have you been doing to to excite churches about that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think perhaps Presbyterians don't tend to. Um, there's not a lot about you know when you think Presbyterian, you don't automatically think missions as right. as opposed to maybe another denomination, and it it may be um, just some misunderstandings of some of the core doctrines of our of our denominations, um, of our belief, our camp, the sovereignty of God. Some may have misunderstood that to mean that, you know, that we don't have responsibility or that God doesn't use means in the sovereignty. It could be that we tend to be a little bit more um, uh, head knowledge types, type of, you know, mm-hmm. filling out the body of Christ. We, we tend to be the thinkers, those who contribute to ideas and things like that. And where missions might be more associated with doing, going out, being active. But I'll say this, you know, among um, the one of the reasons that drew me to the PCA in particular, and I, again, I don't want to disparage any other Reformed Presbyterian denominations, but just to, to highlight that this expression of the body, particularly in the reform camp, one of the pillars of their foundation um, in addition to being faithful to the word of God and um, faithful to the reformed faith was, was to be obedient to the great commission. Mm. And so for me, it seemed like built into its very foundation was this, this outward facing, this global mindset. And uh, I, I just feel like it's such a privilege to be able to serve in this, this denomination. So. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think about J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and he's making that great argument that of all the people who should be confident and energized by evangelism, and that would include missions, I think, right? Um, it's us who, it's those of us who have this high view of God's sovereignty, because why else might you think this project could work? if it wasn't for the fact that a sovereign God is behind it, who's unchanging and immutable and is ordained, whatever comes to pass, you know, how else can you go into a country where there's a huge linguistic wall and cultural wall and all of these other issues that come into play and expect there to be any positive response? You know, I, I, I love that about mission to the world and the PCA in general, how, as you said, that organization is so committed to proclaiming the gospel and working with, as you, you even said in your, in the, in the project that you're doing, you know, working like we, everybody doesn't have to come to MTW, you know, you can go out to other, um, other organizations. I've always been really impressed by that, how MTW missionaries work cross platform as it were often in the, in the countries that they're going to. What, what are you seeing in terms of, I mean, if I could kind of curl around to MTW then, um, what are some of the exciting stories going on out there in the field for, for MTW? Where, where, where are you all seeing the Holy Spirit at work through the proclamation of the gospel? Yeah, that's been another incredible privilege um, in, the, in the role that I have is that best seat in the house. You see what God is doing in and through his people all, all over the world. And I will say what has been probably um, a pattern that has been there from the beginning of time is when you see large 
movements of people through war and suffering and challenges, you also see opportunities for the gospel to go forth in power and in powerful ways. And that really has been our experience um, most recently with some of the events that have happened globally in places that have been uh, quite challenging historically to reach. So, I mean, maybe going backwards, obviously there is a war that's happening in, in mm. Eastern Europe and mass migration of people out of uh, Ukraine into other places have, has led to great opportunities to minister to those who are suffering, who are fearful, who are um, in great grief and anguish. And so we do see the gospel going forth in power. Many people coming to faith, um, Bible studies being started, churches even uh, outside of Ukraine for Ukrainians being started. Uh, and so while we would never wish anything like a war on anybody and acknowledge the pain and atrocities that have come and the difficulties, and yet we see how God has used even these things to bring forth gospel life, new life, new birth, new expressions of his body all over. And I would say that that similar that has happened similarly with what had happened um, in the uh, 2010s with all the events that were happening in the Middle East and North Africa. Again, great migrations of people coming into Europe and other places, people who who's found Sort of their societal foundations have been um, broken down, and those things that perhaps they had trusted and depended upon, whether it is a culture or government or um, a religion, uh, those those things have brought great disappointment and frustration. And so there there's been just such an eagerness to find truth, to find meaning, to find security, and um, and we we see. Um, people responding to the gospel in, in mm. incredible ways. There were churches in Germany that we work with who struggled in these large, large cathedrals to have a hundred people on a Sunday, and yet after these incidents, they talk about having fifteen hundred people now fill fill their churches, and they complain by saying, "We don't have enough Christians." to tell the number of people who are asking about Christianity wow. and, and to disciple them. And that same thing is actually now happening more recently in some of these challenging places with these migrants. Our missionaries are coming home. They're burnt out. They're in such hard places, places that you would think would be um, uh, completely um, challenging for young American families, and yet our, our our families are there, and they're coming back, they're, and they're burnt out, and then you say, why are you burnt out? They said, uh, it's not because we're living there, it's, it's because we have so many people that want to be discipled, but we don't have enough people to disciple them, we, yeah. and, and so they're working themselves to the bone because of this overwhelming sense of opportunity, responsibility, need, people are hungry hungry for learning and growing, and, and um and so that's sort of our challenge as well, is that we just want to see more people engaged in the work that God is doing as he's opening up these opportunities. Incredible. It really is the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few type of 
uh, type of thing, the way you just described it. The And it's interesting how much of a parallel that is like in the book of Acts with the persecuting of the church, the spreading of believers that began to uh, kind of start this church planting movement, uh, you know, kind of taking a, a tragedy and then turning that into a blessed good. Do you see a similar thing? I mean, with these people migrating and, and spreading, it, it just seems in the way that you described it, it just sounds like there's such a need now for so many more churches to get started and church planters uh, to come and start, you know, uh, you know, we're talking discipleship, but that's our, that's the job of the church. That's what we're called to do. Uh, are you seeing that type of um, uh, type of thing now where uh it's sort of like uh, church planting, but not here in the States. It's church planting now globally in, in these different areas. Is that the type of thing that you're starting to see and the needs that are starting to arise? Absolutely, Peter. That's exactly. And, and what I fear, though, is that there's actually a window of time where you God can do anything, uh, you know, in his providence. But in, in sort of our experience, there's kind of a window of time where you can you can engage in people who are so open, so willing, so, and it's part of it is demonstrating God's love and, and showing mercy and showing compassion on people who have real needs, physical needs, um, but also the opportunity to share the gospel and to express and demonstrate real Christian community. Um, but if you think about it, after a number of years, the window kind of begins to close and the door begins to close because you just kind of get caught up in the normal rhythm of life once you've adjusted. So I think um, it is what you're saying, Peter. We are seeing those things, but I think that, that we have to recognize it's a window of opportunity. You know, I think I remember, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Scott, Tommy, there, I, I think there was a seminary in Indonesia. You know, this is years ago before we even knew uh, Grace Utanto and all that, that required their seminary grads, in order to graduate, you have to plant a church. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, we that's should the try that. We should try that <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be in the States. I mean, you know, we have a brother here with MTW. We could just send them their way and uh, plant a church in uh, various different areas of the world where, you know, these people need to be discipled. I mean, you know, that is the job of the church. It's so convicting, boy, to hear that that arise in the need and and how it's like tailor fit for churches to meet uh, as uh, a way of just by extension doing what we've been doing all along. So that's really incredible. Mm -hmm. I, I've I've seen that in uh, used to work in a kind of a seminary that was for pastors in um, Arabic speaking contexts, and a lot of them were converts uh, from Islam. And during the ISIS, you know, events uh, in Syria and Iraq and Turkey, and that whole region was disrupted. And there's all of this migration, forced migration, as you were talking about. And we saw, and th there was a window of opportunity. I mean, I'm sure it's still there to a certain extent, but there was a time where there was a real incredible influx of people into churches in this region. And you saw the same thing. We saw Arabic speakers coming in. We were training them as fast as we could to go into churches. But then you had a whole number of 
you know, Persian speaking, you know, Iranian refugees coming in too, and also wanting in. That's a whole different group, you know, and just realizing, wow, there's, there was so much need at this moment and being in the right place and being able to provide, you know, to serve that need was really needed. That idea of a window kind of opening and closing, it's so important for us to be aware of that as a church and to be able to respond. Um, Oh, who are you? Are, are you? Well, let me let me do this because we're talking about seminary too. It was we broached that topic. You've got a seminary student. You've got someone who feels generally called to gospel ministry. They want to preach the word. They maybe have kind of a, a urban or suburban picture of what that looks like because of the church they grew up in, and they're listening to this and they're thinking, "Yeah, I, I want to be a part of serving." You know that that this open window. The, the the for this time you know how do you, how do you discern a call to that how do you discern whether or not you're going to be a sender or a goer uh you know any advice in terms of like first steps that you might take and mm-hmm. if you're trying to discern that call and 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 how someone how a young theological student a seminary student which makes up most of our listeners how might they discern that calling in their life yeah I- First, I just affirm like asking the question may be the start of an internal call. I mean, a, a, a desire, a curiosity, a questioning. And I think that's beautiful. I think we should um, challenge all the folks who are listening to really ask those questions. And then that growing desire, that growing sort of heart interest, maybe a, um, you, you begin to see a connection with your life experience. You're like, oh my gosh, there's a need out there that kind of fits hand in glove to my experience or my ethnicity or my desires. And, you know, so that's internal. But I, I, and I would say cultivate that, grow and ask and and find out. But then I would say, you know, the external confirmation or the external call is is start talking with your leadership, uh, pastors, professors, others who can kind of know you and understand. you know, some of your strengths and weaknesses, you can kind of walk alongside of you in that. Um, and then perhaps uh, start engaging with a ascending agency who have the experience and the personnel, the people to, to really help answer those questions uh, to see if you're ready to engage in global cross-cultural ministry and, and what perhaps you might need to um, shore up in, in order to do so. Um, and then maybe one final thing is is try and find a community of people who also are thinking, asking these questions, who have a heart, because it can be really lonely. Unfortunately, I don't, there's not a lot of communities that are engaged in this. And so if you can get three or four families or uh, maybe even more than that to, to meet regularly, pray regularly, I think that goes a long way to help discern sort of the external and internal call. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on it. Is is there a personality type that goes into missions, or is this does it take all different types? <laughs> I guess yeah. if someone's kind of if someone's trying to maybe self-select, uh, is there a personality type, or what's been your experience? I want to bust that myth because I think that there there typically is in people's mind this oh I like to eat weird food or and I like to you know. <laughs> not have any schedule and just be a free <laughs> spirit. And I'd say that's the complete opposite of me personally. And I've served for 10 years. Um, so I don't think that there's, uh, 
I don't think there's a personality type. Um, I think God needs and can use all different personality types. Because guess what? The people you're reaching are have, have all personality types. Right. So um, uh, there's not a one size fits. There's not a you know. Let's break those stereotypes and um, and say God can and has and will use His whole body to engage in this endeavor that He has called us to. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think liking to eat ethnic food would not sustain you in missions. I don't <laughs> feel like that's an adequate motivation. I don't know missions as well as I'd like, but well, you know what? There yeah. used to be a time when um, you could say if you love Jesus and want to preach His gospel, you know, eating food is a kind of a new criteria that I'm, I'm coming across. Although I guess I could appreciate what they're trying to get at. <laughs> hey, Lloyd, the um, uh, with uh, this kind of plethora of, uh, of of or the need here for for new churches in in the in the international uh, kind of growth of the church beyond here in the U.S., uh, I would think you're going to need um, you know theological schools to train uh, uh, some of the local men and or people who are called to this type of pastoral work. Can you speak about like seminaries, like it, not not here in the states that are sending students, but I'm talking about um, schools there. Like, in fact, I know you did something like this in Southeast Asia when you were there and started some type of like a theological educational school to train uh, locals to become pastors. Is is there what's the situation with things like that? I mean, we can hear about churches, we can hear about, uh, and we and we hear about. Um, you know, it varies different other uh, marketplace type uh, missions work, but what about like seminary education or theological education? Yeah, absolutely important, crucial. So I would say in any church planting endeavor, there has to be thought about how do you continue to raise up, train, equip new leadership for the church. And it does look differently depending on, in my experience, and of course it's, limited and it's not the final word, but um, there are different needs at different stages of a movement of churches, a denominational movement, you know, what, however you want to describe it. Um, in our context, starting presbyteries, right? There's always going to be, be a need to ask, how do we continue to raise up and train? And so maybe early on in sort of newly formed, new, it can be less formal. So things uh, like um, a Bible school for undergrads and then, um, or different module, uh, modular trainings. Um, but then over time, those things, I think, generally tend to be more formalized. And so then you do look for faculty and you do look for really creating institutions that have longevity to carry on the growth of the denomination of the church over a long period of time. So we've engaged in a lot of different ways depending on who we're working with. Um, so I would say that's kind of just the, a general framework, huge needs um, all over the world as these new bodies of Christ are being formed and developed over the long haul. Sometimes you need to ref help refresh um, uh, a, a denomination that, that you know, is really struggling to try and raise up new people. And a seminary can do that. But there are also unique opportunities. And one that comes to mind, for example, in Rwanda, 
they have passed a law that requires all those who are leading churches to have a bachelor's or master's degree in theology um, because the government of Rwanda is trying to crack down on unprepared, unqualified church leaders. Now that's a that's a that that has huge implications for the whole country um, in terms of the church. And so um, some of our folks who are serving in Sub-Saharan Africa are saying, "Well, what can we do to help? So how do we create um, trainings to help educate?" Uh, hundreds, thousands of those who would be affected by this law that has come into place. So there are those unique opportunities. I think that those laws may be replicated in other African nations. Um, so there's huge opportunities for formal theological education in unique places. Lloyd, I, I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, but I'm curious, like, what would you want, what do you wish seminaries did better when it came, comes to the training of, of missionaries? What, what what would be your your wish list for seminaries and seminary trained individuals? Not, not this applies to us per se, but just... I'm assuming <laughs> that we're doing these things, so it's for other seminaries. Yes, for those other ones. Well, I... I will say I, I really applaud um, RTFDC for their the fact they have a missions course, and it's not to say that others don't have mission courses, but I think there has been some movement away towards global foreign missions um, courses or training in seminaries, uh, and so it has been encouraging to see that there's somewhat of a a movement back towards it. Um, I do think now, again, no criticism at all towards this healthy movement, but a desire to think of local missions or urban missions in the United States um, and preparing graduates for engagement in these areas. Wonderful. Praise God. But it seems like the pendulum has swung so far towards that that there's been almost a neglect or uh, global missions is just an afterthought. So. In terms of seminaries and institutions here in North America, it's it's wonderful to see that there's both. There's there's a healthy balance of engagement in local missions or in urban missions here, but also um, equally an emphasis in teaching and encouragement towards global missions. One other quick note about that is, is just how surprised I am at how how few people really have have heard about unreached people groups, and uh, you know that you kind of see the eyes widen. And like, oh my gosh, is that is that true that there's this many people who've never had a chance to hear the gospel? And to me, it, it's just it, I think it's telling of sort of how um, a lack of emphasis on global missions kind of leaves a big gap uh, in the church's mind in our. Uh, people's mind of, of the needs that are there overseas. I feel like when Missions Day came around at our at, at our church growing up, you know that day where they had the missionaries come in and they they told you to to do missions that they they talked about nothing but unreached people groups. So it's strange to me that there would be this sort of lack now in understanding. Yeah. yeah. What is I mean? It was for so long the ten forty window was kind of the window and it. 
came up actually in one of my classes the other day. We were, we were talking about it and the students were like, so is it still the 1040 window? Is that is that still the space where it is? Or how do we talk about it? Is there a new way in kind of missiology that we're talking about on reach people group, people groups? Are we have we made any headway on that uh on that rectangular space? That is still a focus, certainly, of unreached people groups. It's still where the majority live and reside. I do right. think that there is movement toward it. But others now are talking really about um, post-Christian uh, nation spaces, peoples, yeah. uh, misreached peoples, uh, people where... That's interesting. It's such, yeah, it's such a challenge because of history, because of things that have happened in the past. And when you do the percentages, you realize, oh, wow, in this developed Western nation, there is less than two local Christians. And you're like, that's an unreached people group. Yeah. But it takes a completely different approach, in my estimation, to engage in that context than sort of a traditional unreached people group. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting, right? Because and a lot of people, I know missionaries think about this, but a lot of people who maybe don't think about it long enough, you know, realize, you know, there, there are the... Oftentimes we talk about unreached people groups. People assume like a tribe somewhere that has not reached been reached by civilization, Western civilization or something, as opposed to going into a city that maybe used to be a center of Christendom and mm-hmm. has not been for a thousand years, you know, mm-hmm. and that there are so many people there who've never heard the gospel in their lives, you know, um, It'll be interesting, particularly, I mean, as you think about a lot going on now, both post-Christian, that that idea of misreached people, I think that's a fascinating idea and a tragic, tragic reality, but that the gospel has gone into a place, but it went went in in the wrong way. Maybe it's a part of colonialism or something else that's left actually obstacles to the gospel. But yeah, thinking about strategically, where are these new spots where there's unreached people? And they may be in places that we don't historically think of as being unreached. You know, it's not that that's not that vivid picture of someone going in to Papua New Guinea into a place where no one's ever, you know, translated the language or something like that. It seems like that's that's a totally that's a totally different project. Right. Yeah. But important one. Maybe on that note, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that kind of missions as colonialism argument you know you hear that um i I think more and more in popular circles that this is that that missions in and of itself has a kind of colonialist aspect to it how would you respond to that and and yeah how would you respond to that yeah I, i think we just that is one of the biggest barriers to engaging particularly younger folks in this um global missions endeavor. And I think we need to be honest with our missions history to say, yeah, the church has made mistakes. There have been certainly those um, who have tied our mission efforts with selfish reasons, empire building, uh, those things in in the past, the crusades, obviously we need to acknowledge uh, was a a huge mistake and it's really closed Christianity off to um, most of the Muslim world, and then also our imperial colonial history of um, attaching civilizing with evangelizing and, and the argument for, for some to say, well, we can't evangelize until we first civilize. And 
importing um, different cultural norms. Mm -hmm. So I would say we need to acknowledge that there have been mistakes in the past and um, to acknowledge them as mistakes, as things that have not served Christ well. At the same time, I think there are opportunities to bring some clarity. I mean, history is not as black and white as we tend to <laughs> right. um, assume from, from our vantage point here in the um, year 2023. And, uh, you know, so even the term civilizing, so what did that mean in some contexts? Missionaries were against um, but binding and uh, female infanticide and were against many of these things to say, yeah, these things are could be uh, undone in these different cultures. And um, mm -hmm. and so that we have to understand the terms. We have to understand what was being. Um, we do want those parts of different cultures to change, right? I mean, I think those yeah. those are the things that we would include in, in that. Um, and the good that Christian missions has done um, for societies and for cultures in the past. Woodbury, for example, has has done a lot of research sociologically on that. So I'll say I would say first admit. Yes, there have been mistakes, but also try to bring clarity and then to describe what missions is today. And, and um, most evangelical missions are not seeking to, I mean, I would hope none are seeking to obviously colonize or, or come in. Now, are there opportunities to ask, do we come in with paternalistic attitudes at times? Probably, we're, you know, we're sinful. We need to guard ourselves. Can history teach us and help us to grow in our engagement? But um, the fact that that many uh, mission agencies, evangelical mission agencies, are partnering with the national the national churches, are coming alongside, working hand in hand, um, has it's just an example of how things have changed dramatically to some of the um, uglier parts of our missions history in the past. Yeah, I, I remember um, a professor telling me about a class that was offered. It was it was the, the it was a mission seminary um, that was training new pastors, new converts, and the yeah, but in a different culture. It was there's a lot of cross cultural work going on, but it wasn't sort of American to cross culture. It was cross culture within a whole other region. And they talked about a class that he had that was called um, absolutes, convictions and preferences, you know, and the idea being that you just had to, first of all, help people, pastors and missionaries um, realize as you're going into a new space. Okay. So what are the sort of the absolutes? Like there is a God, Jesus is Lord, <laughs> Trinity. Yeah. Then you have your convictions uh, you know, how do you uh, understand the gifts today? Baptism. You know, how do you apply the baptism? It's not like these are not important. They're just they're not absolute. We we recognize reasonable Christians can disagree. Mm -hmm. And then they got down to preferences, and you know, they noticed a couple of things. One was that there's a whole lot more preferences than convictions mm -hmm. and absolutes. And most of the conflict in their churches were around preferences, <laughs> you know, and not 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 the convictions and the absolutes. And um, 
of course, right away, some of the missionaries involved realized, yeah, this is also true in my society too. This is true in the play, in the country that I'm coming from, that we have, it's the same thing. We spend a lot of time on the preferences, not as much time on the absolutes and the convictions. And the gospel does have that kind of powerfully, culturally agile way of mo- moving into cultures and transforming them from within uh, and working in a lot of different cultures, you know, working cross-culturally. And that's, that's, that's both one of the, I think like the powerful app of the gospel may be part of it, Mm -hmm. but then also one of the things that we struggle with, as you were just saying, you know, it's so easy to mix in cultural values and to confuse our cultural values and preferences for what the gospel is. Now, how much Lloyd of of what you coordinate is now, I realize you work with a lot of churches here in the U S that are sending missionaries, but, but there are areas of of the world where the church has now grown that is sending missionaries themselves that maybe a generation ago was the target of Western missions, but now may not need as much because the church, the Lord has blessed those churches. They are now sending missionaries, uh, other places. Uh, how much of that do you coordinate? And, uh, I'm sorry, if I could just backtrack one moment, where, uh, where are some of those areas where the church is just really, the Lord has just blessed, they are growing, uh, they are sending missionaries themselves. And how much of that do you coordinate yourself as a as MTW coordinator? Yeah, so it is. Uh, it's been a delight to see. Um, now, and this is over really decades of mission growth and church growth. But the second largest sending eight uh, country, apart from the U.S., is Brazil. Uh, oh, oh, really? Brazil. No. Yeah. Some thought it was it was and it was South Korea for many years, but now Brazil has taken number two spot um south korea would be third i believe and um and many other places again and that have formerly received missionaries nigeria sending out missionaries so wow. um we are seeing the growth of missionaries coming from um places that have received uh, only received missionaries and it's exciting so uh how much does does MTW coordinate? We we have no authority over these different countries, obviously, or their sending, but we seek to partner. So we have lots of Brazilian missionaries working together with some of our folks in places like Spain and obviously Portugal, and uh, but beyond even um, Portuguese-speaking places. Um, and so that's been uh, wonderful to see those partnerships, uh, obviously with South Koreans as well, uh, as much as we're able to partner and um, work together in different fields, we, we seek to do so. We've done that historically in the Philippines with a seminary that any South Korean missionaries have started, and um, those patterns are repeated in other places. That's cool. Yep. Well, how can we pray for you in the work that you're doing? How can we pray for you in MTW? Yeah, I mean, um, I would I would say please continue to pray for the one percent. You know, we it is a prayer that we have started and we're encouraged by it. But as I mentioned, there's so there's so many needs, so many opportunities, and so there's there's a, a holy burden, a good burden, um, to really encourage our churches to um, send more laborers out to the field, the harvest field. I would say for me personally, my perennial request which I see the need for more and more uh, for just humility in, in the task that's before us. It's daunting. It's um, 
so humility and for wisdom that you know the wisdom that god promises in, in his word um, wisdom from above and finally just for faith to trust that god can and will do his work um, so those yeah. three things for me personally would be great sure we will and that i mean the, the that five-year check-in that you guys did with the survey is pretty impressive that the lord's doing that work and bless blessing those efforts and those prayers thus far so 2027 will be the next uh the next main stop right is that the end of the of the campaign that'll be yep that'll be the 10-year mark all right we'll keep you in our prayers thanks for thanks for joining us and for sharing your heart for this work and the work that's going on around the world and um uh, we look forward to you. You're one. We were saying this before we started recording, but you're one of our uh, one of our few two-time guests. <laughs> so you're into rarefied air. It's only the really special people. We'll have to come back in in five years. Yeah, 2027. We'll check in. Check in. That would be wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for being with us, Lloyd. Uh, thanks everyone else for joining us. We look forward to being with you all next week. Until then, take care. I should say, Lloyd, I've, I haven't been on the podcast for about three weeks, so I'm trying to remember what, what I do here. So I'm going to try the boilerplate. I have not said this in, in a while, so I think I still remember it. <laughs> okay. It's All like right. riding a bike, Scott. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. Welcome to the faculty. Okay, let me get it. Okay, here we go. Ready? Welcome to the faculty podcast, part of a 50. Yeah, I already messed it up. <laughs> let me do it again. Welcome to the... <laughs> Welcome to the RTS Washington Faculty Podcast. I messed it up again. Look at that, guys. All right, here we go. This is it now. You know what? Maybe Tommy should do this. I think he's been rehearsing. Probably. I, I've got no. I've got to do this. If I get, if I don't get on this bike, I'm no, I'll never get back on again. <laughs> <laughs>